This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for so me. So as we've been talking about here on Bloomberg, Facebook met. shares falling today, stock erasing an initial advance as an antitrust probe from the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, overshadowed results that analysts describe as very impressive. Our Shira Overday writes, Facebook is starting to feel the pinch of privacy. She is Bloomberg Opinion technology columnist. She's back here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I love this, the pinch of privacy. Right, we've talked about it for a long time and concerns about privacy when you think about all the data that Facebook has. And maybe they're starting to feel it. Yes, maybe. So I think it's it's understandably easy to be cynical about all the various kind of regulatory crackdowns and uh, political bashing of Facebook and Google and other big tech companies and think that, you know what, it's not really having an effect. These these companies are still churning out these gigantic revenue and profits, and Facebook got fined $5 billion by the FTC for violating people's, um, people's privacy, and $5 billion is a lot of money for most companies, but not a lot of money for Facebook that has $45 billion in the bank. But... If you listened to Facebook's earnings call yesterday, they were a little bit cautious saying, look, our growth rate is going to slow down at the end of this year and into next year more than we expected. And in part, they said some of these um, privacy crackdowns are having an impact, whether that was GDPR, the kind of strict privacy rule put in place last year in Europe, or Facebook's own kind of self-imposed um, privacy handcuffs, all, these things kind of all combined are having an impact in the way that they force Facebook and its marketing partners to use less data to precisely target ads. And that means that Facebook may get less money per ad or the ads are less effective. And in, in the end, Facebook makes slightly less money. And so pulling out a, a little bit, widening the aperture, I mean, it feels like, especially with the stock reaction yesterday of like, yay, they're still making money to today, like, oh, maybe things are a little more complicated, that it is a more complicated world. And this is something that you've dug into, I know, as it relates to not only Facebook, but Amazon as well. This is a different world, maybe, I dare say, a more skeptical world that we're living in when it comes to these big tech names. So how does that play out here, you think? I think you're right. I think that there has just been a different sentiment about uh, the America, the American tech industry in the last few years. The people are starting to realize, you know what, all these great technologies that we raved about for the last 10 years, there are some downsides. There are some serious downsides in terms of trade-offs on privacy or making us addicted to our phones or giving the power to you know, a handful of companies to amass huge dossiers of personal information and track us around the world. So th- there are a lot of problems, and I think that all of us in, in some way or another are coming to grips with the, the trade-offs of these tech companies. And the tech companies, too, are having 
to deal with the impact of that, both in Washington and other political capitals and with their customer base. And I just think about Margaret O'Meara's great new book, The Code, Mm -hmm. where she talks about the history of Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley used to make stuff. And, you know, they invented the microchip. And that, you know, when when you come out with, like, the TI calculator, you're like, okay, this is a cool calculator that can help me calculate things. And now we've got these companies like, I can get you a lot of ads really fast that are targeted to you. And you're like, "Mm, that doesn't feel the same. No. I mean, to be fair, right, it, it, I don't want to be 100% cynical because it is true that these, a lot of these tech companies make products that all of us use every day and that have really, you know, changed the way that people live and also changed the way, in, in the ad case, changed the way that people find out about products yeah. or buy products. So it's not that there's nothing good coming out of the technology industry. It's just that there are some downsides. I love what you say, though, because right now everybody is go- – we just had the story yesterday about you know hedge fund guys right, and investors and how they are trying to tap into kind of various consumer you – know, various public data that's out there to kind of get Fitbit the edge. data. Exactly. So what I, want, what I think is interesting in your story, Shira, too, is how you said that maybe one fix would be to permit Facebook's information collection only inside the walls of its social network and other apps, not just about every we're online in the real world so that if you started to say okay we've got this data pool but we are only going to keep it within our walls that's a very different kind of plan and proposition versus our data is available to be sold to everybody it is it is quite a radical solution i basically i think that the the internet economy particularly as it relates to advertising but not only advertising the internet economy is broken the, the whole basis now is basically to normalize ever more aggressive human surveillance in order to kind of connect the dots between okay i saw a billboard for a new movie on the corner of 5th avenue and then you know companies following me to the movie theater that weekend and then seeing that i bought you know, some Coke that I saw an ad for inside that movie theater, right? It's all about proving the um, the viability of marketing. But that has meant that there are creepy things happening, and, and it has become just the standard way of doing business on the Internet, and it just feels like it, it has gone too far. Is it going to be the ultimately politicians just saying this is wrong, or is it going to be really the consumer pushing back? Because I do feel like a younger generation is like, yeah, you want to find out how to make good. Yeah, cool. Because you're going to send me emails that I care about or whatever. So I do wonder, is it going to be consumer pushback or just really political pushback ultimately? I think it'll be everything. And I don't actually think that people don't care. I, I think that's a little bit of a fallacy. So I was talking um, the other day to Dina Srinivasan, who's an antitrust trust scholar who published recently an interesting paper kind of linking Facebook's history of privacy abuses and its monopoly power, what she calls its monopoly power. And one thing she pointed out is, look, there are literally hundreds of millions of people using things like ad blockers on web browsers, which shows that people care about privacy. Yeah, it's really interesting. My favorite line, normalizing ever more aggressive human surveillance. Man, she's good. She is great. I love talking to her. Makes me think about kind of where we're all going. Shira Ovaday, you're the best. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week here on Bloomberg Radio. So the Voice Summit is underway. It brings together startups, uh, mature companies, all of the individuals and companies at the forefront of voice technologies. You know, things like Alexa, chatbots, uh, and so much more. Behind the event at NJIT and back with us to talk about it is Dr. Joel Bloom, president of NJIT. 
uh, Institute of Technology, New Jersey Institute of Technology, on the phone from the campus in Newark. Hey, Dr. Bloom, good to have you back with us. Um, I feel like voice, we've finally really figured it out, and it is really um, rapidly invading our world. Hello, Carol, and good to be with you and Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're absolutely right, it is rapidly invading our world. The, our nearly 3,000 participants at the conference last year has doubled to over 6,000 this year. Uh, last year we had uh, 11 or 12 uh, countries represented. Uh, this year we have nearly 30. So uh, you're absolutely right about where we are with people interested, the companies engaged, and the technological advances. So, um, and it's, it's a great conference, an absolutely great conference. And so tell us about, I mean, you've walked around, you've talked to a lot of the folks who were there, got to sit in on some presentations. What's the coolest thing you've seen, new and different? <laughs> well, there's two, actually, now that you ask. Uh, one is Amazon came in and uh, constructed a house of the future, at least a couple rooms uh, in, in the conference space. So we have an Amazon smart house in the building, if you will. Um, and the second um, is Startup Alley, um, where we've clustered startups based on similar interests in emerging technology. And if you just stand there and listen to the exuberance and the conversation, you realize why, as Carol has already said, this is moving very rapidly. There's a lot of very smart people, very engaged, and working on some very good technology. So the Amazon Smart House and uh, and just putting this startup alley together within the conference center are two additions for this year as compared to last. I have to say, Dr. Bloom, I just look at my own home and, you know, playing around with Google Home and how quickly we've embraced, you know, Google shut on the light, you know, turn on the lights, turn off the lights, do this, do that, you know, check out this and so on and so forth, that I do see ultimately maybe working with developers and so on and so forth, that you are going to have these much smarter homes where you literally walk in and you're like, turn on the lights, turn on this, do this, whatever. Uh, I can see us, you know, easily walking uh, into that space. Well, and I I absolutely agree. Uh, This year, in addition, in my own home, Mm -hmm. I now have uh, smart thermostats, Mm -hmm. So, uh, which winds up saving you a lot of money, as you would realize. You know, you can let the house either heat up or cool down, depending on the season. And then you you step in the front door or from your smartphone, uh, you could turn the alarm off. You could turn the thermostat up or down, depending, again, on seasonal preferences. So between... The smartphone and the inter- and the interface of voice walking through the door, your house is ready by the time you've unlocked the, that front door or opened your garage door or however you enter your house. Um, and it's all smart technology, and and voice is is leading the advances. Uh, not unlike yourself, you I just get up to a smart device alarm. Uh, it tells me the weather. It, it tells me the travel conditions I'm going to face. Tells you about this the Bloomberg is, News top stories. Yes, tells me. I'm sorry. Did I leave that out? I think <laughs> you did. The, the tips to start your day. Exactly. Right? Those are the five. I think I get those in the morning. Um, and then the top stories. I, you're absolutely right, Carol. Sorry, All right. My so. Apologies. 
So, Dr. Bloom, I mean, what's also interesting is the folks you have here aren't the just the usual suspects. And you talked about the startups. You also talked about uh, some of the tech companies. But this is really infiltrating in many ways more traditional industries, whether it's healthcare, insurance, and others. Only got about 30 seconds left. But tell us about that. So, so I walked around. I could not believe the number of healthcare and just about every major healthcare, either company or institute, meaning treatment, is here at the conference. I was blown away by that. Similarly with insurance, um, you can now, via the telephone, make changes on my insurance policy, report an accident. Uh, they can follow up. They'll get the guy to take care of the little chip in your windshield that you got on the highway. It is all AI and voice, oh, I'm sorry, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and voice technology. That That's a lot of the future and just before everyone gets a little negative, yes, these are displacing jobs, but think about all the jobs on the developer and designer side right. behind all of this new technology. And we keep hearing more and more about that, about humans working alongside with all of these uh, sophisticated, voice-enabled devices. Dr. Bloom, great to get some time with you once again. Good luck uh, with the summit. Dr. Joel Bloom, president of New Jersey Institute of Technology, on the phone from the NJIT campus in Newark, New Jersey. Come on now. All right, so just as we were ending the show yesterday, Tesla came out and really disappointed mm -hmm. investors in a big way, to say the least. Yeah, Not only with the numbers, but with a bombshell that, oh yeah, by the way, the co-founder's leaving. So not a great day for Elon Musk on the market today. Let's get into what's going on there and across the world of governance. For that, we turn to Eric Gordon. He is professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. That's where he joins us. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mr. Eric, nice to have you with us. Oh, it's nice to be back, Jason. Sure. All right. So all of this comes out. Uh, what'd you make of it? You know, it's uh, it's about four parts bad news and one part good news, um, which, uh, you know, could be better than you expected. But, you know, a Tesla is uh, Tesla is a more difficult story to buy. Uh, I, I actually, to be more accurate, Musk's story about Tesla is a more difficult story. Uh, to, to go with, especially after yesterday's announcements. And so, and what, why? Well, basically, basically why? <laughs> yeah, so here's, here's the formula that I put together. It's, it's kind of rudimentary. They're, they're betting on the Model 3. This is their supposed mass market sedan car. And what they can't seem to get right in the formula is volume times price. You have to get the volume, how many cars you're selling right, and the price right. You have to get that combination right in order to make a profit. So they can sell more cars by lowering the price, and that hurts their profit. Or they can raise the price, and then they, get, they sell fewer cars. They can't put the two things together that they have to put together to have a mass market profitable success. All right. So... <laughs> You know, it's so funny because I always feel like with uh, Elon Musk, you know, you should never necessarily rule him out. Um, so I don't know. You sit down with Elon Musk. You know, here you are teaching the next generation of folks who are going to be analyzing companies, running companies. What is it that you want to know right now, Eric Gordon, from Elon Musk? Yeah, I want to know how he converts from an entrepreneurial successful startup story with lots of glamour, lots of pizzazz 
into a company that in uh, that operates in a big mass market industry. How do you make that transition and do it successfully? And something you mentioned at the top of the story is hasn't worked for him. For example, he can't keep good people. The latest departure is just one of a long string, and, and I've stopped counting them because I, it's, it's outrun the number of fingers I have. Right. Um, you can't be, you can't convert from an entrepreneurial company to like a real grown-up person company that this, way. Isn't this so much the Google story, the adult in the room, Eric Schmidt? Isn't this so much the innovator versus the operator, Tim Cook uh, and Steve Jobs? I mean, this is, we've seen this movie before. Yeah, we have. And, and, and you know, what you really like to see is somehow you get two people who will work together. You, you get that innovative driver, the, the, the person who's almost nuts about innovation. Uh, but you, you get them together with somebody whose feet are actually on the ground, can run a business, and remembers that they're running a business. They're, they're not. They're not running a hobby. They're not. They're not running something like that. Um, the governance problem at uh, at Tesla is, you know, Elon gets his way. It's his way, or uh, yeah, I hate to say this. It's his way or the highway. You said it. You went there, Eric. <laughs> uh, well, and it's interesting too. And we've talked about this before. We maybe even talked about it with you. You look across the uh, across the portfolio at SpaceX, where Elon seems to have found very much that adult in Gwen Shotwell. That company's doing very well. We don't know as much about the numbers because it's not publicly traded, but a lot less drama. So this can be done, and it can be done with Elon Musk. It feels like. Yeah, you know, you know, you wonder what is his emotional attachment at Tesla, where he thinks he, like, he's the only smart person in in the room. You, you know who he reminds me of? He, he reminds me of the middle school kid who got straight A's and at the end of the year had no friends because nobody was smart enough to be his friend. Mm. For some reason, that seems to be triggered at Tesla, and not so much, uh, you know, at SpaceX. So, okay, so I guess how do we interpret uh, Tesla at this point? There certainly are a lot of bears out there. Uh, we had a bull on this week, earlier in the week, Kathy Wood over at ARK Investment, and she, you know, her, well, part of her case, too, was that those folks that are following Tesla, it's not just a car company anymore, full of a lot of technology. It's, it's a lot more than just your traditional auto space. So uh, how do we kind of anticipate what's to come? Because, you know, you talk about Elon Musk talking about profitability right now uh, at the same time you have you know another senior executive leaving so i don't know how do you strategize on a name like this yeah so one thing i think the technology story i think the technology is a depreciating asset they started off with a big lead on everybody else because the rest of the industry was caught flat-footed um, but not so much anymore. The rest of the industry is doing alliances, putting a lot of money into it, and they're going to close the technology gap. So the idea that it's this huge technology company, the value of the technology piece, I think, goes down every quarter. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, the, the analysts make their calls, their bull or bears, based on the stock price versus the company. You could have a company that survives, does ends up doing pretty well, despite the fact that you have a lot of bears out there because the stock price, the market cap, is you know just ridiculous yeah and so what are the lessons that you know if if there are entrepreneurs listening if there are investors listening what are the lessons that you would take away from this i mean what would you tell your students about this i have to think you're talking tesla when you're talking to students oh they love to talk about this company <laughs> me too so if you're on the entrepreneur side the lesson is partner up with somebody you trust and if you can't trust anybody don't try to build a big company 
on the investor side, set up governance structures so that you don't end up with a CEO, whether it's Musk or remember Travis Kalanick with Uber. Yeah. Uh, so you don't end up with a CEO who dominates the board and, and does whatever they want to do. So what you do is if you're an entrepreneur, you partner up. If you're an investor, you know. Uh, you know, get the right kinds of covenants, get the right kinds of stock structures, so that y- you don't have to let you don't have to let the CEO run amok. Right, and there's a little bit of a caveat emptor here in the sense of, in a company like this, like we know the board is stocked with friends of Elon, you know, right up to to Larry Ellison. So you have to be able to take that into account, and you know, sort of hang on to your hat if this is the sort of situation you're getting into. Yeah, you need directors that are really independent. You need uh, you need some diversity in the directors. You, you know, there's this legal fiction that some of the directors are legally independent, but in fact, they're not the least bit independent. Right. You want to set up real independence. You want to set up real diversity of backgrounds and thought. All right, Eric Gordon, always a treat to catch up with you. He's a professor at the Roth School of Business out at the University of Michigan. He joined us from there in lovely Ann Arbor. She's Can't go wrong with the beasties. All right. Uh, this is my must-read of the week. It's the U.S. cover. Uh, Josh Green wrote it. He is national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from our 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Josh, Carol and I got a chance to catch up with you earlier in the week, and you can catch our whole conversation there on our weekend podcast. So we're all in on this story. Elizabeth Warren, you've been following her for a long time. She's kind of hot right now. She is. She's the candidate with all the momentum going into the big uh, Democratic debates in Detroit next week. Um, She's gone from essentially dead in the water, if you go back to January, February, the beginning of the race, to um, definitely the top tier. And if you look at polls of how voters feel about the candidates generally, they're more positive toward Warren than any other candidate, including Joe Biden. Josh, I thought the the lead anecdote that you led the story with was really revealing because it, it speaks to just how off target she was at the start and then it yes. sort of ended up falling in her lap. What what was your what did you discover in your reporting? You know, it really did. One of the interesting things, you know, the thing that first established Warren as you know, a player in the Democratic primary was she came out with this idea for a wealth tax, an enormous two point seven $5 trillion wealth tax on the richest Americans. And I found out during the course of the reporting, actually, she'd been invited to Davos by Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum. That was our uh, wait what moment yeah, of this whole exactly. story. You had me at Davos. Go on. He, he, he started recruiting her last fall to come to Davos because he really wanted to focus this year on inequality, which, of course, they did. And Warren, uh, who was who very smart about communications, realized what a great opportunity that would be. Elizabeth Warren kind of you know telling it to the bankers at Davos, but she thought she needed – a big enough policy. So she sat down with her advisors and came up with this idea of the wealth tax. Only then at the last minute, she decided not to go to Davos. She was afraid that if she you know, left the small town, rural Iowa you know, campaign stop she was doing to go rub elbows with bankers, it would reflect badly on her. Uh, but it's turned out to, to really be the thing that's distinguished her in the Democratic primary race, along with all the other plans that she's been rolling out. So the whole idea here is she played it safe there, or her, she and her team did, and she's done with that. 
She's definitely done with that. I mean, the, the, Warren has emerged as perhaps the most controversial candidate in the Democratic field because she, by putting out all these big policies, it's not just a wealth tax. It's uh, you know, abolishing the filibuster, getting rid of private health insurance and giving people Medicaid, you know, free college and health care, you know, th- this kind of uninhibited liberal revolution that's excited a lot of voters, which is why she's recovered in the polls. But it also frightens a lot of Democrats like Nancy Pelosi, who are thinking to themselves, listen, all we need to do is get Trump out of here. Don't blow it for us by scaring away swing voters. And it's an open question whether Warren's big agenda is going to be a net positive or a net negative for Democrats. So to that end, though, Josh, there, I thought one of the most interesting things that you sort of, I, you know, I think this is the most multi-dimensional profile we've seen of Warren yet. And there was a particular point that I thought um, you nailed, which was part of what she learned in 2016 watching Trump was that the party basically moved to Trump. Yeah. What did, how does that apply to what she's doing with the left? Well, so, you know, Warren, since the minute she appeared on the public stage back in the mid-2000s, has obviously been an outspoken uh, champion of liberalism, of a left-wing agenda. But the party generally hasn't been been willing to move in that direction. If you look at Obama and the people he appointed, if you look at Clinton, what she generally wanted to do, that was not an Elizabeth Warren party. You know, Warren is more in the Bernie Sanders camp. So Warren's belief watching Clinton and Democrats fail utterly in 2016 was that they were too timid and they just didn't give Democratic voters a reason to come out to the polls. So she told me she is not going to make that mistake. She looks back at 2016 and she told me the lesson she learned is, you know, if you want the this to happen, you have to go do it yourself. And that has been the story of uh, Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary race this time around. I, I also thought you, you did a really good job of just bringing in a little flavor of her perspective on, on business, which is different than the Bernie camp, right? So what, how does she articulate Absol- that? Absolutely. She's been hammering at private equity last week, right? So what, what did you learn from that? Absolutely. You know, one of the interesting things I was talking, I started talking to her last fall. And, you know, at the time, you know, AOC was was kind of big in the news, and Bernie was obviously going to run, and Warren was emphatic. She said, I am a capitalist. I'm not a democratic socialist. So she made a real effort to distinguish herself as someone who believes in markets, someone who considers herself a capitalist, just wants stronger rules. I think she is shrewdly realizing that if she positions herself a notch to the right of Bernie Sanders, that... Uh, you know, a lot of people who would be afraid of electing a socialist or nominating one might be willing to to swallow essentially Elizabeth Warren's version of progressivism. Uh, one uh, one strategist told me essentially Warren is making progressivism safe for the mainstream because right. the market looks and sees right. Bernie. How right. is her mango lemonade? Quite delicious. She's got a good res- homemade recipe for mango lemonade. <laughs> I, re- I recommend it if you get the chance. All right. Josh Green, national correspondent, Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Joel Webb, our editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, check out this story, a must read, and our domestic cover story. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This 
is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Craig Hodges, CEO and Portfolio Manager of the Hodges Fund. Um, about $2 billion in assets under management based in Dallas. He and Jason have been doing that whole Texas thing <laughs> um, in our Bloomberg. He, however, is at our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I say that with respect. I have a bunch, a whole family yeah, you've branch. you've got a lot of Texans yep, uh, in, all over. in the family tree. It's not all just New Jersey there. for the Masters. <laughs> no, <laughs> all over. Um, nice to have you here Thank with you. us. Thank you. Great pleasure being on. Um, talk to us about managing a fund in this environment yeah it's it's been challenging you know the 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 etf business has just kind of taken over our, our industry and you know actively managed funds have had you know really hard time the last three or four years and um you know it's getting it's getting better i think we're getting close to a point where the difference between you know indexing and active management is now becoming so apparent that you can buy really inexpensive stocks that have been left for dead that indexes aren't participating in and really do well. So I think it's kind of almost at a turning point now. I hope so. I hope so. That's, yeah. that's my thought. That's what I get up thinking every morning yeah, when I get out of bed. said optimistically. <laughs> yes. All right. So as we are you know, knee-deep in earnings here, are you able to discern any trends within your portfolio of what you're seeing in terms of commentary, demand, supply, yes. anything? Yeah. Uh, and we, we've kind of seen this the, the last two quarters that have been uh, reported. Earnings are great. And the numbers are better than expectations, but everyone seems to be focused on the guidance, Mm -hmm. and the guidance is very mixed. And I think almost with the tariff uncertainty and some of the political discord, management teams can be a little conservative, and they can actually bring their numbers down a little bit and kind of under-promise, if you will. But what I've noticed the last year earnings period, there's been great earnings, but there's been a lot of stocks that get hit really hard. So we've actually, in the Hodges Fund, we've raised some cash thinking that we'll be opportunistic in this in this environment where like today I see like a Spirit Airlines down 20%. Yeah. You know, that's an opportunity. And enough know, to pull the switch on it or pull Yes, the I, I hadn't it? seen the exact news yet on 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 what, what how they missed cuz I've been here uh, here in New York City and Dallas, but those are the type of, of and, uh, things that present themselves. And at the Hodges Funds, we want to be opportunistic and buy good companies when they go on sale. Stock's down 23%. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. You know, speaking of sort of the general kind of transportation tourism uh, area, Norwegian Cruise Line is yeah. a name uh, that you like. And you talk about opportunity there in part because of what's going on in Cuba. Talk yeah. about that. They have this Cuba ban that where they Norwegian, which has the most boats going to Cuba, yeah. they said they would uh, bring their earnings down about 40 cents this year, which is about 7%. But the stock has dropped 20% on that 7% yeah. back up in earnings. And so, and, and, and Norwegian's a company where about 55, 60% of their business or bookings are done so far ahead of time, they pretty much know how they're going to do right. And we're, you're talking about a company that'll probably go 18, 20% in, in earnings growth that's trading about 10 times earnings. That is a great risk reward ratio. And I got to think that, and maybe I'm being over, overly simplistic here, but if you're going to go on a cruise and it's going to the Caribbean, you're like, oh, well, that's too bad that we're not going to Cuba, Cuba. but we're going to Cozumel or right. we're going to the yeah. DR, wherever. Um, we're still going. Yeah, don't make those. And we're still going to buy a bunch of drinks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, but how it, much though of like Norwegian too? Is it is it a lot of it Europeans? Or is there, it there's a mix? part of it, but it's it's pretty well mixed. It, it, they don't have a whole lot of Asian exposure, which is one thing that, that I think is a positive. But Norwegian's a smaller company, and they it, it's the one that can 
add boats, add capacity without it affecting the, the demand of the industry. So uh, I think they're in the best position in that regard. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, as high quality of a company as you'll come across. And, you know, the demographics for that business, is, you know, as we all get older, we all want to go cruise right. more, right? And so but what I about think that argument that they've really got to go after that younger generation? We, you know, we talk about what cruise lines, the big guys, whether it's Carnival and others, are yeah. doing to attract the younger audience to make sure that they are continuing to take cruises for decades to come. I think, you know, it's it's become almost a destination thing and, and, and a lifestyle thing. And they, they do try to adhere, but, you know, the, the biggest segment of the population are what? The baby boomers, yep. which are cruising right now, and then figuring out over the next... 20 years how to get the second biggest group the, the millennials to yeah. to right. get on board so all right so this is going to be a hard turn from cruising to low cost rebar <laughs> yeah. uh, which you also like commercial <laughs> don't metals fall asleep here. cmc don't fall asleep. <laughs> but it's a really important economic yeah. indicator i mean because you're talking about stuff getting built it's the most mispriced stock i see in the market today no kidding commercial metals which has about a 50 percent share in the rebar business and rebar of course goes in roads and goes in buildings and you know, here's this little company in three billion in market cap that has 50 percent of the industry, trading about six times EBITDA. That's so inexpensive. They um, pays a three percent dividend, almost a three percent dividend. And you know, if we get any sort of, you know, our infrastructure is in, is in bad shape. Something's going to happen in the next 18 months, infrastructure wise, and they will benefit as much as anybody. This is fascinating. I mean, this is a company you're talking about with what uh, expected revenues of almost five point six billion dollars this year, and currently has a market cap of two point one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and wow. it's a low margin business, but they are the dominant player there, the low cost producer, and. I followed this company for over 20 years. Usually, when they're earning this two to two fifty, like they are, the stock's in the 30s or 40s, and yeah. here it is at 17. So it's interesting. A, Why was it down so much last year? Was well, it just- I think it's it's very bizarre because they're kind of thrown in with all the other steel companies, which you know there's a lot of concern and the tariffs. A lot and of we're tariff not, we're not action. Sure yeah. About that. So it, I think it's more of the uncertainty. But the, the, their last report was a fantastic quarter, and the stock ran up a little bit. But I, I still think it could be you know it could go up another 50 percent. Before we let you go, uh, United Rentals, another really interesting name in in terms of understanding the economy. What's going on there? Um, Really inexpensive stock. Stock was 142 weeks ago. They reported a slight disappointment in their revenue. The stock went down $25 on that. Um, The stock trading around 120, 125 will earn $21 a share. And this is a company that's going to grow double digits trading at a a mid-single-digit number. And a fantastic company. And they essentially said bad weather yeah, <laughs> right. was kind of what led to it. So nothing fundamental, no, but I guess something out of their control. They'll, those are the opportunities. You can buy growth stocks at value prices if you look hard enough. Kind of love this small cap space. Yeah, small and mid cap to some extent, right? It's yeah. like a lot of things yeah. you don't great. talk about on it's a regular great. basis. But it, but, it, but it demands that you really go deep and know yeah. it like you uh, clearly do. All right, Craig Hodges, CEO, Portfolio Manager for the Hodges Funds. They're looking after about $2 billion down there. In the Big D, Dallas, Texas, he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So great to catch up with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.